So uh, we've been walking through the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth takes place during the time period of the judges, which was a unique time uh, for the, uh, the nation of Israel. And, and it was a time that was not a highlight for them as far as how they acted uh, and how they responded to the Lord. It was a time uh, that is described as everybody was doing right in their own eyes. And so the nation of Israel, they didn't have a king yet. And so, and, and they weren't responding to, to God as their king. And so they just started falling into all of this idolatry with the people uh, around them. And, and ultimately, when you read the book of Judges, you go, man, was anything good happening? And so the book of Ruth takes place during that time, and it, it brings us into this story about this family. And it really highlights uh, this, this mother named Naomi. Now, Naomi uh, was married, uh, had two grown sons, uh, and, and her family, they were in Bethlehem. And then they left uh, to the land of Moab. They weren't supposed to leave, but they left. And they go to Moab. And while they're in Moab, there was famine in the land. And her husband, Elimelech, dies, tragically. And then, on top of that, she then loses both of her grown sons. So now we're immediately confronted with this, this widow who is just mourning, right? Everything, her, 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 her whole story, right? Everything that she thought was supposed to happen has just unraveled. It's gone. Uh, God, why would you do this? You're sovereign. You're over everything. Why in the world is this, is this my story? And, and, and so she's hurt. She's bitter and, and just really broken, and so in that brokenness, she approaches her daughter-in-laws because her grown sons were married uh, and they had been for 10 years. And she uh, approaches them and says, go back to your people. Go back to your, your land. Go to, back to your families. Go back to your gods. I have nothing to offer you. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And, and the best I have is I just hope to survive. And so we see that one of the daughter-in-laws goes back to her hometown, back to her people, her family. Uh, but then another daughter-in-law refuses. And she tells Naomi, I'm going with you. Your people are going to be my people and your God is going to be my God. And her name is Ruth. And, and so we're introduced to Ruth, this daughter-in-law who demonstrates incredible loyalty, uh, character, and, and, and follows Naomi back to Bethlehem. And it's there that they're, they're faced with, uh, how are we going to eat? How are we going to survive? And so, uh, Ruth ends up, uh, accidentally, uh, going to one of the fields to glean, uh, and that field belongs to a man named Boaz. What we read about Boaz, he was wealthy. He was a man of high character uh, who loved the Lord. And he notices Ruth and he's heard her story. And so he approaches her and ends up just blessing her. And it's through that that Naomi starts to come up with this plan. Hey, Ruth doesn't have a husband. She's a widow. Boaz is single. And Boaz, as we read, also has this unique role because he, it turns out, is uh, related to Elimelech, Naomi's 
former husband who had passed away. And so he had this, uh, this role called the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer that he could have on their life. And, and that role was reserved for somebody who was an extended family member to be able to go and to, if it was their brother or, or a relative, they could marry that widow, uh, and, and take on that role of kinsman redeemer and, and making sure that the, not only the property, but the family name would continue on. And, and so Boaz is in this unique position. And so, uh, last week we saw how, uh, Naomi tells Ruth to go and approach him and ask him to be that. And so, uh, our Ruth goes and, and approaches, uh, Boaz and asks him to be that redeemer for her and Naomi. And Boaz promises her that he will make sure that she is redeemed. But he tells her something that she doesn't know. He says, Here's the problem. There is a family member closer than I who is a nearer redeemer who has the first right. And, and so he says, I'm going to approach him first. And so uh, now we, we're, we enter into the setting where Ruth has done everything she can. Right? Like, like she's, she stated, will you be, uh, that redeemer? Will you marry me? Uh, and, 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 and will you carry on, uh, my family name? Uh, all of that. She's asking for that, but now there's nothing else she can do. She can just trust, she just has to trust Boaz. And ultimately, she has to trust the Lord. Like she can't manipulate Boaz. Uh, she can't, um, do anything to cause him to make sure it happens. Uh, she's done everything she can and now it's up to Boaz. And, and so that's where we pick up in chapter four and we'll start in verse one and it says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Okay, so uh, Boaz had promised truth. I'm going to secure your uh, redemption. And so he goes to the gate of the city where legal transactions would take place in those days. And while he's there at the gate, he actually sees uh, the, the, the man who is a nearer redeemer, nearer to the family than he is uh, through relationship. And so he sees him and he invites him to take a seat. He says, come on over here. Uh, we need to have a conversation. And then Boaz invites 10 elders from the city who would then act as witnesses to this conversation to make it valid. 
And so before these elders, Boaz tells this redeemer uh, individual uh, how Naomi, uh, who they both know, is, uh, is intending to sail, to sail her sail. Man, I can't even talk anymore. Is intending to sail uh, her family's land. So she's going to sell that away. And, and he's telling him, listen, I want you to know about this because legally you are the nearer redeemer. And so uh, I, I need to find out if you're going to actually follow through with that and be the redeemer and acquire the land or not. Because if you're not going to do that, I'm the next in line to do it. And so if you're not going to do it, let me know because then I will do it. And, and we were introduced to this whole kinsman redeemer uh, term. And, and we actually read about it in Leviticus 25, 25, where it says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Uh, remember in those days, maybe you don't remember because you don't know, but in those days, God had blessed the people of Israel with this land. And he wanted the land to remain, uh, the property to remain in those families so that uh, somebody couldn't come in and buy up all the land away from these people. He wanted to make sure uh, that their, their family name and then that their family land stayed with their family. And so this whole uh, kinsman redeemer was designed so that someone could come in to make sure that if somebody was really struggling and, and was being forced to sell off their land, somebody within the family could purchase it and maintain the property for that uh, family. And so uh, he's being confronted with this, the nearer redeemer, who we don't know his name, uh, but he's confronted with this. And, and, and so he says, I will do it. I will do it. Until Boaz tells him the full story. Right? So he thinks, I'm agreeing to purchase this property. I'm increasing my land. This is a good opportunity for me. And then Boaz, and we're not sure why Boaz informs him of this after the fact. <laughs> but then Boaz says, hey, by the way, there is something that comes with this. Okay? So with this land purchase comes Ruth. And with Ruth comes perpetuating the family name through her, which was that law of leveret marriage. And so now <laughs> the redeemer's like, wait a minute. So now I have this role of redeemer where not only I'm redeeming the property, but now this widow to where uh, we have a child and now my inheritance is split. And now part of that is now uh, through Elimelech's line and not mine. And so he's like, no, this is no longer advantageous uh, for me or financially smart. And so he rejects the offer to redeem Naomi's land and he gives Boaz the right to redeem it. And then in verse seven, it says this. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. 
Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay, so the writer here just kind of stops to explain something because his audience is a generation removed from a custom uh, that was very normal in ancient Israel. And so he, he kind of stops uh, to, to let them know, hey, this is what's happening here. And this is uh, how transactions legally would take place during these times. Uh, the removing and giving of the sandal in ancient Israel was like signing a contract in contemporary society. We see it in Deuteronomy 25. We also see it in the book of Amos. And so the writer states that this was legally binding or it was attested in Israel. I actually thought about bringing one of my flip-flops just to like do an illustration. Um, but they're nasty. And... Uh, and I didn't want to bring them. And you think of what was happening here, and it's kind of nasty, isn't it? Like, what? no, I don't want to see that. Like, I don't want that, right? Uh, but the nearer redeemer was relinquishing his rights while removing a sandal to give it to Boaz. And he's finalizing the transferring of the redemptive rights that he had. And he's transferring it over to Boaz. And then Boaz asks for affirmation of this transaction to all the witnesses. In fact, twice he, he uh, asks for affirmation, right? And what he's asking for is the affirmation so that uh, this individual cannot go back and change his heart. I uh, can't say, oh, I didn't know this or, or that was incorrect. No, these witnesses are finalizing this transaction. And, and so... Um, Boaz is seeking not only uh, the rights to the inheritance of Naomi, that land left by Elimelech and her two sons, who he lists, but he's also uh, wanting to make sure that now Ruth is his wife. According to all of you now, you're you're, you, you heard what was said, Ruth, I'm taking Ruth as my wife. And he describes her as Malon's widow, indicating that he plans to make sure Malon's name doesn't vanish from among his relatives or the gate of his hometown. He wants Malon's name to be remembered for generations to come. You guys, throughout all of this, you see Boaz honor the Lord, uh, have incredible integrity, and display the fact that he not only wants to honor Ruth, but he wants to honor their family. He wants to honor that. And, 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 and so as, as he's asking for affirmation from all these people, uh, they don't just affirm it. They start blessing him in response to what he does. Because here's the reality. If someone did not, if someone had the role of redeemer and chooses not to, uh, in those days, the widow uh, would then walk up to them, rip off their sandal, and then spit in their face. 
Yeah, I know. It got real, okay? Uh, and, 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 and so, you know, it was, a, it was a big thing. It was a big deal. And so uh, we see Boaz inserting himself in here willingly and, and saying, no, I want to redeem this family. And, and he loves Ruth. And, and so he goes into this. He wants to honor even her late husband uh, by his response. And so they, they, they literally, the, the people that are watching, they affirm this. And then they, they pray these special blessings from the Lord over Boaz and his action as the Redeemer. They wish for uh, his house to be fruitful. Uh, they bring up Rachel and Leah, who had brought Jacob, a large family, making up the nation of Israel. And they say, we wish the same for you. And then the second, they, they wish for, for wealth and, and for fame uh, to come to Boaz's name, which I think happened because we're talking about it today. Third, they wish for a long line of male descendants. And they talk about Perez, whom Boaz had descended from. And, and they say Perez was the father of many descendants. And so we wish the same for you. So they're praying the special blessing over Boaz as he willingly goes into this. And then it says in verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. See, now, what we see here is the focus of this redemption story now becomes this male offspring who brings incredible blessing to Boaz, to Ruth, to Naomi, and for generations to come, as we see. So Boaz married Ruth, and, and, and then the Lord enabled Ruth to become pregnant. Now, remember, she'd been married for 10 years, was not able to have kids. And so the Lord works here, enables her to have a child. She gives birth to a son. And we see the women of the village uh, are celebrating. These same women who once had, had, when Naomi came back, grieving, broken, bitter as to all that had happened in her life, all that had been taken away. Uh, these same women who said, is that Naomi? Is that her? Now they are crying out in praise to the Lord for what the Lord has brought into her life. 
how the Lord has, has brought this incredible redeemer, how the Lord has shown his faithfulness to uh, Naomi by sending this incredible blessing, uh, whose name they hope uh, is renowned throughout Israel. And, and the son's significance for Naomi, it was huge. He would restore life to Naomi, they cry out. He's the one who's going to regain, uh, bring hope into her life. He's going to sustain Naomi in all old age. He will be her earthly provider. Uh, this son we see will be this redeemer for Naomi. And the women of the village, they also recognize the blessing of Ruth to Naomi. She, this, uh, this Moabite uh, daughter-in-law, this, this, this foreigner, this one that, that, you know, that, that wasn't supposed to happen, uh, you're not supposed to marry them, all this, this th- that, that individual, that daughter-in-law, they say, Naomi, she is better than seven sons to you. Now, that's a big statement. Because seven is the number of completion, and, and they wanted to birth sons in order to preserve their family name. And so the more they could, remember when it said, be fruitful and multiply the earth, they were like, let's go, right? And so the more, the better. And so this seven, this number of completeness, and they're like, she is more valuable uh, to you than seven uh, sons. And so this is an amazing affirmation of the character and the love that Ruth has for Naomi. And we read that Naomi becomes a nurse to the boy and they name the child Obed. Notice this is the only time in scripture that people outside of the parents name the child. They name him Obed, an essential person in the story of redemption. Why? Because we read twice Twice, just in case you miss it the first time, right? It says, you need to know who comes through this son. You need to know whose line, whose family line this is. You need to know the power and the impact of what Boaz does and the ripple effect that it has for generations forevermore. Just so you missed it, David's coming. Right? So, so us, the audience, the readers today, we pause and, and, and we go, wow, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wow. Wow, that's the story. And then, and then it goes, hey, just in case you missed it, let me keep going here. And then, it, and then it goes even further back and it goes all the way. And then it says, hey, and by the way, David. This son brings the line of David. The line through which a son of David, Jesus, would come to rule in the Lord's house forever and ever to come. See, you guys, the book of Ruth beautifully illustrates God's work of salvation. The story opens with with Ruth, right? Ruth, this, this outsider, this stranger, she's in a foreign land, she has nothing to offer. She, she's, she's lost all hope. She's lost whatever resemblance of a normal and successful life she would have. And, and, and then the story ends with Ruth as a member of the covenant community because she's married Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. He paid the price for her to be redeemed. And so Ruth is no longer this poor gleaner, this foreigner. Now she has Boaz and she owns everything that belongs to him. 
See, Boaz, Boaz redeems her. He's this picture of the redeemer that would actually come through his line. And so it, it says, hey, you can't miss this. Uh, like, here's the, gene, uh, the genealogy. This is the route, ultimately, that you guys, you can't miss this, that Jesus took. This is the roadmap. This is the way Jesus chose to come to this earth. This is the line. And, and, and you guys, just to, just to give us a full picture of that line, like, uh, who was Salmon? We read the name Salmon as part of that. Who was Salmon married to? Yeah. Quiz. Someone said it. They're like, I won't say it again. <laughs> No one knows which answer. Rahab. Rahab. Who's Rahab? Rahab was the prostitute who in Jericho allowed the Israelite spies to come in. And so you, you see these names here. And, it's, and, it, and scripture's just like, don't miss it. Don't miss it. In fact, it says, don't miss it because you might not have read the book of Ruth. So, hey, I'm going to do it again. And in Matthew chapter one, how does Matthew begin? And so many of us have like been like, ah, why does it start that way? It brings us what the genealogy to Jesus so that we cannot miss the route that Jesus took, the family line that Jesus took, which is not full of all these cooker, cookie cutter Christian stories of success that make sense of these families that just had it all together living the American dream. No, there's stories like Ruth. There's stories of like Rahab. And, and, and so it, sa- it ends the book of Ruth saying, this is the line to David. And ultimately, this is the line that brings us the savior of the world, Jesus. And you can't miss it because here's the reality. Um, this is not the route you or I would have chosen. And yet it's the perfect route that the savior of the world has chosen so that we would see something, that we would see that he uses and chooses to use broken people, sinful people, people that were disconnected from God, people that had no ability to save themselves, no ability to redeem their life. And yet he says, that's the road I'm taking. And to communicate something to us for all of time that we would stop and consider the moment we start qualifying people to be Jesus followers. So that we would stop and, 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 and stop, uh, literally saying, like, I, I'm unworthy. I, I can't. Like, do you know my story? Do you know my past? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I'm addicted to? Do you know how often I fall into this? And Jesus is like, I do. Look at my line. Look at where I came from. I understand you. I know you. And, and guess what? I can redeem you. You are not unredeemable. That is what the genealogy of Jesus tells me over and over again. You're not unredeemable. And you guys, I'll tell you what, we look at our families, man, our families are messes, amen? I mean, we just had like Thanksgiving and, and I mean, it's like, oh boy, right? All these conversations and you're just like, please God, don't bring this one up, please. Like, don't let this one come up. And you're on like defense against it, right? And, and, and we, we come away from some of these things and go, man, we got a messed up family, you know, and it's full of all kinds of people and, and all kinds of different things and beliefs and all of that. And, and so often we can disqualify family members, our kids, our parents. We can disqualify our cousins. We can disqualify ourselves and, and go, man, I'm a mess. And with the genealogy of Jesus and, and what this tells us is God can redeem you. 
God never, never chose the perfect route, did he? In our minds. It was the perfect route because he chose it. But what makes it perfect is how he's revealing to us who he uses over and over and over and over again. And you read all those stories. These are not people that you just go, wow. No, there's, there's some messiness there, you guys. Never allow the enemy to tell you that your messiness disqualifies you from the love of God. And so when you read that genealogy, I know it's at the end and you're like, eh, okay, story's over. Like, no, stop and go, wait a second. Oh, I've read this before. Why does Matthew begin with that? It's because scripture is telling us something and it doesn't want us to miss it. You guys, all of this took place because of our need. The need that all of humanity has. And that's why this is the theme. This is the beginning of our Advent series. It's because we have to be able to acknowledge we are all Ruths. We all are. We need redeemed. We have no ability to redeem ourselves, right? Like, like I can't redeem myself. I can't, I can't like make myself acceptable to God, to his family. I can't be good enough. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the law, the law just revealed that you can't be good enough. And so no one could be perfect enough. And, and then I, I, I go, well, uh, I, I've made a mistake. Well, not, I'm not perfect. Well, now I'm disqualified. So there is this gap, this chasm between me and a perfect and holy God. And I, I cannot bring about redemption for myself just as Ruth couldn't. And we see all throughout the Old Testament people understanding that they are desperate, they are in need, and they are separated from a perfect and holy God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, they're looking for the Savior, right? They're looking, who is it? Is it him? Is it going to be that one? Is it going to come through that line? Where is the Savior at, right? And so they're looking ahead for that moment because they knew that we are in need as humans. So we can't redeem ourselves. We are the outsiders, in fact, uh, Ruth, uh, Romans 5, 12, it tells us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In verse 19, then, in Romans 5, it says, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And then it says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. It says, like the rest of mankind. Okay, so guys, this is the story of humanity. It's not beautiful, is it? You know? Are we getting better? No. <laughs> right? Like, we're not. Like, uh, and, and, and throughout Scripture, there's just this progression of getting worse all throughout the Old Testament. You're like, oh, is it going to get better? Nah, no, it didn't. Oh, it's getting worse. Right? And I, I mean, ultimately, in Genesis chapter 6, we, we read these words, and, and it's, it's sad. And, and I want you to just hear the heart of God in this. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this is just, I can't even imagine. It says, so, and so the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And I'm thankful for verse eight. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But that's where it was at. And ever since the fall, you guys, humanity has been separated in desperate need. And just as Ruth was, as she approached Boaz's field, nothing to offer, just looking for something. Humanity has been crying out for a redeemer, just as some of us are even today. We're crying out for a redeemer, for someone to save us. And, and I think what's so sad is for many of us, we're looking for that redeemer outside of Jesus. And we're looking for either that thing, that person, that moment. And so we have to make a decision ultimately. Will, will we humble ourselves, we, will we go to Jesus and ask him to be that redeemer? Will we just as, as Ruth went and lay at the feet of Boaz and, and, and is like there going, I'm going to initiate this. Will, will we go to, will we go to the father and, and, and just say, I, I need Jesus. Like I need Jesus, you guys. And here is what's so powerful um, about, about Jesus. Like when you look at what Ruth did, Ruth initiated redemption, didn't she? She, she approached Boaz and she's like, you need to marry me, right? Like, like she approaches him. You guys, what is so incredible about Jesus, and this humbles me all the time, is Jesus initiated your redemption. He initiated it. In other words, before you acknowledged him, before you ever cried out to him, before you even knew who he was, he initiated redemption on your behalf. That's how much he loves you. He knew all of your, your past, your present, your future sins, all your addictions, all your issues, all your struggles. He knew all those moments you were gonna think something you shouldn't have thought, all those things. And yet he still, because he loves you so much, he initiated your redemption. Jesus went here, came down to this earth, lived a perfect life, and then ultimately purchased your redemption on the cross, proving that he's the ultimate redeemer. Boaz is just a poor stand-in. I mean, this is what we read in Ephesians uh, chapter one, uh, verse seven, it says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then in Hebrews nine twelve, it says, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal, and there's that word again, redemption. He is the ultimate redeemer so that now by placing my faith and my hope and my trust in him, Acts 2.21 tells me that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? 
And as a result, just as Ruth is no longer this poor, widowed gleaner who's out there in the fields just looking for anything and no longer defines who she is, guess what? When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're no longer spiritually bankrupt. In fact, we, we, we see in Galatians chapter four, verse three, it says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem, oh, there's that word, those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What he's saying is you have been adopted. You have been redeemed and brought into the family of God so that the very riches of God, the father are now available to you. So what defined you, uh, the, the things, the failures, the moments of weakness, uh, what, whatever it is, your struggle, uh, your area of doubt, what, what seemed to define you before, no longer by, by the work of Jesus defines you. You are different now. You have a different nature. You are the fathers. You are a co-heir. But I, I guess the, the thing it just brings us back to is, can we admit our need can we admit our need i'll tell you what that is not a popular topic us having needs in fact uh, we celebrate people who don't have needs right the ones that that uh that have been successful that have, that have said no 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 uh you don't have need you're the solution you can figure it out. You're strong enough. You're smart enough. Get the right people. Do this, do that. And this outcome will happen. We celebrate those people. Those are the people we follow. Uh, physically, even those people that push back or push through these physical barriers and they just keep harping on you. You can do it. You've always can do it. The only one in your way is you. And so I just start believing all of this going, if I'm just strong enough, if I just do this, then this will happen. You guys, here's the problem with that mindset. When it comes to the Lord, you cannot redeem yourself. You can't. You just can't. You can't do it. And so there is this humbling posture that has to happen. And I think ultimately it's us getting to the place where we believe what scripture tells us, what the Old Testament tried over and over and over again to, to communicate that God's story is best. Over and over again, all throughout the Old Testament, we, we see God like trying to tell his people, my story's better. My story's better for you. My story, my plan is better for you. And over and over again, they're like, ah, yeah, maybe. And then he cries out again. He brings a prophet. Hey, God's story's better. And over and over again, they refuse uh, to believe and to acknowledge. And the question I have for us today is, do you believe that his story's better? You're hearing the same message. And through the book of Ruth, you see that in spite of insurmountable odds, in spite of a story none of us would wish on ourselves, 
tragedy, abandonment, feeling like I have no hope, nothing to live for. God doesn't care. He doesn't see me. All those thoughts, all those things brought up, right? And yet the book of Ruth tells me God's story is best. And then it reminds me through the genealogy at the end that the story isn't finished. So that now I can see and understand that, you know what? I may be in a season that's just not working out for me. I may be in a season of loss. I may be in a season of bitterness. I may be in a season of mourning. But you know what? God's story is better. And I may not see or understand the pain I'm walking through. I may not see the purpose in it. I may not understand why things just keep not happening for me. Why I try to pray. Why I try to call out to God. And yet it seems like he doesn't answer. But he answers them. And and, and we bring all of that here. And, And yet what this tells me, what the story of Ruth tells me, what the genealogies tell me is if I will just make a decision, even in my brokenness, to say, God, your story's better. He is going to do something in and through my life that's going to be bigger than even my lifetime. It's going to outlive it. In fact, he's going to demonstrate and show that this act of obedience, this act of faith is going to reverberate for all of time because literally it's going to go down the line, their decision, and we're going to have David. And not only are we going to have David, we're going to ultimately have Jesus. The story isn't finished. Amen? Guys, the story's not finished. There's so much more, and you have no idea the impact that he can have on your life that carries on. So wherever you're at this morning, I just invite you to go to the Lord. Just go to the Lord. He's already initiated. He's already demonstrated his love for you. How will you respond?